0: Hey guys, welcome back to What's a Crime with me, Granya and me, Gemma. Um, we hope that you enjoy this week's episode and I will just get stuck right into it. On the 14th of February, which was Valentine's Day 1999, 42-year-old Carol Sund and her daughter, Julie, 15, and their 16-year-old Argentinian exchange student, Silvina Paleso were enjoying the quiet beauty of Yosemite National Park. Without the bustle of so many other visitors. It was the time of year, it was cold, it was winter time, so yep. it didn't have the same sort of summer attractions. They checked into the Cedar Lodge Restaurant Motel, which was nestled in a bit of a valley surrounded by towering palm trees and the sloping hills of the high Sierras. They were after driving from the University of the Pacific, where Julie had competed in a regional cheerleading competition and toured the campus to see if it would be a good fit for her when she graduated high school. So they arrived early at the Cedar Lodge in a red Pontiac Grand Prix rental car. They spent the day taking in the sights, including Yosemite's Grand Le Capitan, uh, the Merced River, before stopping to go ice skating in Yosemite Valley's Curry Village. The three girls were in contact with family and they were having the time of their lives. They had dinner at the Cedar Lodge restaurant. The girls had cheeseburgers and Carol had a veggie burrito before returning to their room, number 509, to watch a film that they had rented and relax after the day's events.
1: So it sounds like the perfect day.
0: Out. Yeah, they just had like, they were just going on a lovely trip. They wanted to show uh, Sylvina, sort of the sights. Yeah. Um, Carol, who managed several of her family's shopping centres whilst also juggling charity work, called her husband Jen's to confirm that they would meet at the San Francisco airport the next day. So their plan was to go from San Fran to Arizona to visit Jen's sister. You know, like I said, it was part of their plan to show Sylvina as much of the U.S. as possible during her year-long stay.
1: Well, didn't she look out? with was such a great family. Such a
0: great family. Um, and from there, they also planned to go and see the Grand Canyon. So, like, yes, yeah, so lovely. Such a lovely trip. The next day, Jen's, uh, the husband, Julie's father, arrived at San Francisco airport as planned. So he was a little bit late and Carol and the girls weren't there. So Carol was very organized. Um, Jens said that she was a very meticulous record keeper. Um, She never really did anything spur of the moment because she had too many things going on to keep on top of. So he assumed that he had gotten the time wrong. And he went on ahead to Phoenix, expecting to see them there. So when he got there, they weren't there either. So he kind of just decided to play a round of golf. Later, when she still had not been in contact, he decided to make a few calls. So firstly, to the rental car agency. So they informed Jens that the girls had not returned their rented Pontiac, nor did they contact the um, company to agree to an extended you know, time period. So Jens, you know, he finds this odd. He calls the Cedar Lodge and learns that the, girl, the girls had apparently checked out, but they didn't leave their rim key at the front desk. Jens knows then something is wrong. He says, firstly, Carol would have returned the key and she absolutely would have returned the Pontiac on time. He said if something had happened you know, she still would have contacted the car company to agree to uh, an extended time. So he immediately contacts the police and park rangers to inform them that something was wrong. Rangers initially thought that Carol might have lost control of the Pontiac whilst driving. There had been some heavy rain and driving conditions were poor. So a widespread search of Yosemite was launched. So obviously the first point of interest was the motel room where um, they had stayed which luckily had not been cleaned yet because of the lack of staff because it was the off season the scene was processed and they discovered that one pink blanket was missing along with a pillowcase the key was in plain sight sitting on the dresser next to the tv there was no sign of forced entry and it just didn't look like there was you know any huge cause for concern yeah you know um Jens however Assured officials Carol would never have taken anything from a hotel room she also would not have left behind a bag of souvenirs that still sat next to the fridge so then they turned to the missing vehicle Carol's father, Francis Carrington, was extremely worried about his daughter and granddaughter. He said that Carol would tell everybody where she was so he got into his own car and drove to the lodge en route he seen patrol men searching the side of the road. Hundreds of people began searching the rugged Territory of Yosemite and National Park for the rented Pontiac car. Although they did turn up 27 stolen cars, none of them were the Pontiac. Whilst looking for the vehicle, they heard that Carol's wallet, or at least part of it containing her credit cards and ID, had been found in nearby Modesto. So I don't really know where that was in terms of where this was, but on a quick sort of Google map search, um, it looks like about a two hour drive from Yosemite Village. Okay. So investigators set up shop in Modesto and started to search this area. So Jens, who was Carl's husband, was very calm and all this all of this and he sort of seemed to show very little emotion. Um, Carol's Carl's father Francis was distraught. He was, you know, completely on the other end. He was yep. so upset. The family did offer a $250,000 reward for information, which was then upped to $300,000. Because they're obviously a very, very wealthy family. Exactly. Carol's father, Francis, said that he had no idea what to do, but it became almost an obsession that he had to find out what happened. I mean, as it would. Yep. After almost a month into the investigation, the authorities knew that it was unlikely a car accident had claimed the lives of the women. They were almost certain that the girls were victim of a violent crime. No one from the motel recalled seeing anything suspicious or out of the ordinary on the night the girls disappears. But investigators believed that the crime occurred at or near the Cedar Lodge. Oh my God. So employees at the El Portal Lodge were questioned. Two employees, including one reportedly seen changing the locks on the door... Uh, of the room that the girls were staying on on the day of their disappearance They were given polygraph tests and although one of the two failed his test there was no evidence to link him to the crime About a month after they went missing a hiker reported a find to police A vehicle was parked on a downhill embankment off of what looked like to be some kind of old forestry log road So although it was only a short distance from the road, it was obscured by foliage growth that made it impossible to spot from the road. It was an incinerated Grand Prix Pontiac, which was then identified by a partial bit of the number plate. When investigators opened the trunk, they found two badly burned bodies. Oh my God. So for the family, although this find was not completely unexpected, Like, it was obviously still a nightmare. Nothing could prepare you. In the car, they also found a credit card, two cameras with undeveloped film, and a receipt from the Cedar Lodge restaurant detailing the burgers that was the trio's last meal. Oh, my God. So this led the police to believe that this act was committed by someone local that knew the area. It was a dumping ground for locals. And also somebody that knew the smell of smoke wouldn't be alarming to other people as rubbish was often burned in that area. The family got the photos developed and pictures of the girls' holidays, including a photo taken of Carol and one of the girls sitting on the bed in their hotel room at 10.30pm that night. Oh my god, so it was after that.
1: Also, who were the two
0: bodies? The two bodies that were discovered in the trunk were identified using dental records as Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso which meant that Julie was not at the scene so although the family were absolutely heartbroken they were still hopeful that wherever Julie was that she would be found safe. So the, the police still didn't really have, have anything to go on until they received a letter. The letter was a map detailing to the police where they would find Julie's son's body, along with the words, quote, we had fun with this one, unquote. Is this real? So the police followed the map along with cadaver dogs and found Julie's naked body beneath a vast blue sky with grass and leaves partially covering her. So was the actual killer or killers did actually send this map? Yes. It wasn't a hoax. It wasn't a hoax. The police and the FBI focused their attention to this letter. There was a partial fingerprint as well as a very high concentration of DNA on the flap, on the envelope flap, which after testing suggested it was of Hispanic origin. So, with no real clues in the motel room, aside from the blanket and the pillowcase missing, there wasn't really a lot for the FBI to go on. So, meanwhile, investigators were rounding up locally known criminals from the Modesto area, which was where they found Carol's wallet. So, they were arresting these criminals on various parole violations. So, they were kind of using excuses to arrest people with the hopes that they were locking up the killer at the same time. So, they focused most intently on four people. These were Michael, Mick, Larwick, he was 42 years old, a known meth user who was in jail after shooting a policeman with a long criminal history. Eugene Rufus Dykes, 32, who was Mick Larwick's half-brother, had criminal records that includes sex <coughs> crimes and weapon convictions. Billy Joe Strange, 39, a parolee who worked at the Cedar Lodge and restaurant. He was arrested when he reported to his parole officer with alcohol on his breath. And Daryl Gray Stevens, aged 55, who was Strange's roommate, had a 1978 conviction for rape and robbery. So the FBI was fairly certain that they had their murderer behind bars now. And they basically sort of said as much in an announcement to the public. In June, the chief of the Sacramento's FBI office confidently announced that, quote, We have all of the main players in jail, but we are in no rush to charge them, unquote. So, although, like, you know, they hadn't charged anyone for the murders, it gave people at least a sense of safety again. You know, being able to go out and about and do their business without worrying that the Yosemite killer might still be out there. This may be the reason that Joy Armstrong let her guard down and held a conversation with a stranger. Joy Armstrong was 26 years old and living a life that most people only dream about. The Redhead Beauty worked at Yosemite Institute teaching children about nature and was living with her boyfriend-turned-fiancé, Michael Raffaelli. She loved life, she adored her job, and she loved where she was living. She talked about swimming in the reservoir, an azure-blue body of water cooled by the snowmelt from the surrounding Sierra Nevada mountain range. She was a spirited young lady, and everybody that knew her attested to her beautiful, kind spirit – that loved living in nature. She was a vegetarian. She had solar panels to heat her water. She was like be- ahead of her time in, in you know, yeah, the sense yeah. of the environment. While her boyfriend was away on a three day hiking trip, she had made plans to visit a friend in Sausalito, which was a city, it's a city north of San Francisco. Yeah. And after a few days with them, she then planned on visiting her grandmother in San Jose. So when she never showed up, Uh, to meet her friend um, that she was due to meet, she called to report her missing as she was worried why she hadn't shown up or why she hadn't been in contact. On July 22nd, officials were asked to do a welfare check on Joy. When park rangers arrived at her cabin, they found her truck packed and ready to go. They saw that her door was partially open. One of the rangers went inside and could hear music playing in the background. He could feel the hairs on the back of his neck stand up and without seeing any outlying evidence that something was wrong, he called for backup. He instinctively knew that he had just stepped onto a crime scene. Oh my God. It didn't take long for police to arrive on scene. There were mismatched tyre tracks, footprints and crushed branches mapping out a trail. So in turn, it didn't take long to find Joy Armstrong. Police found the body of Joy Armstrong dressed in jeans and a white t-shirt. Her head, however, was gone. What? She had been completely decapitated. Oh. So, the FBI had been investigating the murder of the three tourists in Yosemite in the winter before. So they now suspected that this latest death was at the hands of the same murderer. So, you know, now they knew that they, matter of fact, they didn't have their murder in custody and had to continue the search. So, there had been sightings of a 1979 International Scout vehicle spotted near Joy's house on the night that she died. So, police issued a search for this vehicle. On July 22nd, it was spotted by two rangers about 12 miles from the entrance to the park. So, they tracked down the owner to a similar vehicle. Along the riverbanks, they find a man lounging in the sun, smoking a joint. He was the Cedar Lodge's handyman, and they decided to take him in for questioning. He denied ever being there. You know, he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I was never up there. Um, They confiscate his backpack, which he was very reluctant to give up. This handyman was questioned again the next day at his small apartment at Cedar Lodge. So he lived at the lodge? Yes, he was the handyman there. Again, he denied ever being anywhere near the area where he lived. The where only he p- lived? Sorry, the, uh, the area where Joy lived. Okay. So the only problem was that two different witnesses had spotted this guy in the area. They took photographs of the tire tread of his 1979 International Scout, which was parked outside his room. The FBI were comparing the photographs of the tire tread on this guy's Distinctive international scout to the tracks found outside Joy's cabin, which I said. Remember, I told you they were mismatched. Yeah. They realized they had a perfect match. So he had like different wheels on his car. Like it wasn't the same wheel. It was like so Ford each wheel was was, a was different, different. So they knew that these tire tracks matched exactly the tracks of this right. guy's car. Okay. So suddenly, this you know easygoing, relaxed, and popular Cedar Lodge handyman became a suspect. This guy's name was Kerry Stainer.
1: Does that ring any bells? Hold on a minute. Stainer. Kerry Stainer was the brother of Stephen Stainer. Yes, from last week's episode. From last week's episode, Stephen was abducted when he was seven.
0: Kerry is his oldest brother.
1: What? Okay.
0: Keep going. So, when the police did eventually take a look inside the backpack they had confiscated, although they didn't find Joy's head, which some of them were sort of thinking that they could find, they did find the book Black Lightning, which was a fictional story about a Seattle-based serial killer. They also found a camera, a Corona beer bottle, a harmonica and sun lotion. So the next day, the authorities went to Cedar Lodge to arrest Kerry, but he hadn't shown up to work that day. Not long after, the information appeared on the news along with photos of the now-suspected killer. But Kerry Stainer had already left. He had travelled up to Sacramento and had pitched a tent at his favourite clothing optional resort, Laguna del Sol. That night, he ordered a vodka cranberry juice and he struck up a conversation with the bartender, Janet DeMont. She had remembered him from a visit in March when he had caught her attention wearing a Yosemite t-shirt and cap. So he'd obviously been there before and she remembered him. Yeah. So she asked him about the murders because obviously they were on the news. He didn't say much. He said, you know, the cops are just everywhere and I just had to get out. The next morning, however, when Janet was watching the news, she heard the news anchor announce that the FBI was searching for Kerry Steiner, along with his photograph and a number for anyone with information to call. So she took down the number, called it and informed them that the man they were looking for was in Sacramento in their resort. She alerted the resort's manager who sent groundskeepers to inconspicuously stay around his tent. Tending well bushes, etc. Et on the ball, yeah. she was. on the ball. She recognized him straight away, yeah. she does the right thing. She's not like, hmm, could that be him? Yeah. So they're like, oh we'll just sort of, you know, stand around his tent, pretend we're doing stuff. And um, he kind of didn't think anything of the surveillance. He thought they were actually doing that because he'd already got the morning papers and hadn't seen his photos. So he's not worried. So he was sitting eating breakfast in the resort when three FBI agents and two sheriff deputies arrest him at his table. So he stood up, puts his hands over his head. So as they drove back to Yosemite, one of the FBI agents, Jeff Renick recognized Carrie's name and then he remembered and linked him to the abduction of Steven Stainer. So they had a conversation about his brother Stephen, and in turn they sort of developed a significant rapport. Yeah. And like element of trust. So when someone actually asked Jeff if he thought that Carrie did it, he said, No, this guy couldn't be it. This guy is too nice a guy. Because they um arrested him and he had eaten he hadn't eaten his breakfast before. Um they did arrest him, they ordered him a pizza and he then asked could he talk to Detective Jeff alone. So he told him, I feel like I'm a bad person, I feel like I've done some bad things and then the floodgate opened and as he was interrogated his horrifying story came out. He told them he would tell them about his role in the murders, as long as they met a few of his conditions if he was housed in a federal penitentiary near Merced and if his parents got their award money offered by the son of the family and a good sized check of a good sized stack of child pornography what? well obviously his requests were denied they're not going to do any of those things you know he still talked anyway so Just to do a little bit of background information, he was born on August 12th, 1961. Carrie Steiner was already harbouring fantasies of killing checkout girls at the grocery store at the age of seven. So people sometimes asked if they thought that Carrie, you know, this happening was something to do with Stephen's abduction, if that somehow, you know.
1: Affected him and turned him into a, like, how though? How does it turn someone into a murderer?
0: I know, but. You know, he's he basically is saying he, he's had these fantasies before, like, that even happened. So it's something that was sort of always in him. He said that he had always seen his dad as the rock of Gibraltar. He never trembled at all. Then one day on December 4th, 1972, his brother is gone and his dad is all of a sudden crying all the time. He said he never saw a tear in his dad's eye in his whole life. And then suddenly everything changed. After this, Carrie felt kind of invisible. So their home was just filled with heartbreak and at school he was quiet and didn't have many friends. Although family friends and cousins remember things about him that did sort of make them uneasy, like things like, you know, friends of his sisters trying to spy on them when they were in the bathroom at their house or, you know, trying to touch their breasts and stuff like that, like weird things. Carrie said he felt most safe when he was in the tranquil woods of Yosemite. He was quite shy and awkward with women. When he and his cousin Ronnie would go fishing in Yosemite, they would sometimes come across women swimming in the water, but Carrie sort of would never get in.
1: And like talk to them? No.
0: Okay, so he was also like weirdly obsessed with Bigfoot, so I assume you've
1: probably heard of Bigfoot. Yes. My my nickname for you. Because you've got massive feet. Gemma! Anyway, keep going. He can't (laughs) eye me like that. Oh my god.
0: Bigfoot is this huge, mythical, hairy creature. (coughs) Nothing like you. Nothing like me. Okay. (laughs) That has been spotted for centuries. (laughs) Thank you. That has been spotted for centuries by people in North America. So he's only ever been recorded in like old grainy photographs or like short grainy clips. So... Apparently Kerry had you know, said he spotted Bigfoot Yeah, sure and, he did I know And that he had a strong smell <laughs> But like
1: <laughs> Right, non-stop jokes over
0: Okay So he um, moved to the woods in El Portal West of Yosemite National Park Where he landed a job as a handyman At the Cedar Lodge, the motel restaurant Which we all know what happened there The the out-of-the-way lodge was surrounded by pine trees. It was such a beautiful place to settle down. And he rented a room above the diner and started to grow accustomed to this new life. According to one of the waitresses that worked there, he was a cool guy who liked hanging out with other employees and was totally likeable and
1: ordinary. So he wasn't like what he described himself as. No, he he, he was like, I was always awkward. I I I couldn't speak to people. Yeah, so they're like,
0: he was completely normal. Yeah. So, what actually happened? At around 11pm on the night that Carol, Julie and Sylvina went missing, Carrie Stainer knocked on the door of room 509, interrupting a relaxing evening for the girls. He told Carol that there was a leak in the room above them and he wanted to check for any water dripping down. He identified himself as the hotel handyman. So the ever-cautious Carol checked the bathroom herself and told Carrie there was no leak and didn't open the door for him. So like, you know, s- smart in that yeah, way, you know, yeah, like I would yeah. be like, yeah, sure, come on in. He persisted and she did eventually let him in. He spent a minute or two in the bathroom before emerging with his gun. He told the girls that he was only there to rob them. He bound and gagged them with duct tape, put the two younger girls in the bathroom and then strangled Carol with a rope whilst she was lying on the bed. Oh my god. He dragged Carol's body outside, placed it in the trunk of the rented Pontiac and then went back into the room where the two girls waited. He cut their clothes off and tried to get them to perform sexual acts on each other. But Sylvina could not stop crying. He became so irritated by her sobs that he took her into the bathroom and strangled her while she knelt in the bathtub. Oh my god. He then raped Dilly. So, so sad. Like, how terrified they must have been. How
1: terrifying.
0: After stuffing Sylvina in the trunk with Carol's body, he packed up the girls' belongings so it would appear as though they had checked out. He said he felt like he was in control for the first time in his life. He thoroughly cleaned up the crime scene and left wet towels so it would appear as though the girls had showered and checked out. At around 4am, five hours after the ordeal began, Carrie actually carried Julie naked and wrapped in a motel blanket to the front seat of the Pontiac, where she was oblivious that her mother and Sylvina lay dead in the trunk. He removed the duct tape from her mouth and the two made small talk. He said that Julie was a very likeable girl and she was very calm. Obviously she's absolutely Absolutely terrified and she's just like bide my time. Just see, you know, he might let me live or, you know, doesn't know what to think probably. He didn't really have a plan. He just sort of kept driving around. And then just before dawn, he turned off a two way lane and carried Julie to a clearing and overlooked the water. Here he raped her again, told her he loved her and then slit her throat. Oh my, He's sick. Driving the knife so deeply, he almost decapitated her. He hid her body in a bush and then drove the car as fast as he could into the forest, doused it in gasoline and set it alight. He tossed Carol's wallet in Modesto to confuse officers. So you know how they sort of focused on Modesto? So like, all that was just a ruse. His plan. Yeah. He then called a cab back to Yosemite Valley paying $150 $150 for the 90 mile fare With money he had stolen From Carlson's wallet The cab driver Jenny Paul Later remembered her passenger Who had asked to be driven To Yosemite Lodge Which is so funny That is where Kenneth Parnells um, the, the man that abducted His brother Stephen oh right, actually like worked. Not funny but strange. strange And she recalls the strange Conversation that they had He asked her did she believe In Bigfoot And when she responded no, he told her she should because he is real. So, like, he's just, he's just so, so... Deranged? Yeah. So, a few months later, Carrie decides to go back out to the forest area where he believes he previously spotted Bigfoot with the hopes of spotting him again. He saw Joy Armstrong loading up her car and watering her garden. He got out of his vehicle, the blue 1979 International Scout, featuring a different tyre on each wheel. He asked Joy if she'd ever seen Bigfoot, adding that he himself had spotted the creature once in the fields just beyond her cabin. She answered that she hadn't. Carrie was trying to decipher if she was alone or not. When, she was, or, sorry, when he was satisfied that it was just her, he pulled out a gun and ordered her inside the cabin. He told her that he had only intended to rob her. As twilight began, he ordered her back outside and forced her into the passenger seat of his car. His plan was to rape and murder her. A plan that Joy had likely assumed would be her fate when she decided to dive head first out of the vehicle's open window, and as soon as she regained her footing, ran as fast as she could into the woods. Oh my god. She had no intention of going quietly. Carrie threw his car into park, leaped out, gave chase, and tackled her. He dragged her further into the woods and made his first slice across her throat. He told authorities that she had fought hard and attempted to block the knife by pressing her chin tight to her chest. However, he placed his foot on her head and made another slice. I I can't hear any more of this. He grabbed her leg and as she was still struggling slightly, he dragged her and a few seconds later she went completely limp. He tried to cover his tracks, but the trail was so sticky with fresh blood that it was difficult to hide beneath the dirt and pine needles. He was so frustrated that this is when he severed her head. He briefly considered keeping it as a trophy. So, you know, the FBI actually thought that initially that it could have been a crime of passion because, you know, he severed her head. But it was actually frustration. He was so angry that she'd fought back. He returned to his car, intending to return to the Cedar Lodge but his vehicle actually broke down a few miles short of the lodge, so he got a ride with a passing park ranger. The ranger recalled nothing unusual about the easygoing handyman. Which is
1: even, like, stranger. stranger.
0: stranger. Like, he obviously just had this cool, calm and collected facade that people didn't yeah. really see through. When he did confess about the murders, the FBI had to backtrack and announce that Carrie Steiner had actually been the one responsible for the deaths of Carol and Julie Sund, Sylvina Paleso and Joy Armstrong. So remember how I said they thought they had their guys in custody? Yep. Colleagues of Steiner were shocked. He was a normal guy, they said. The owner of the Cedar Lodges said he was a nice guy and had never caused any problems. He did not look like a serial killer. He was handsome and outdoorsy and did not look like a criminal at all. Well, looks can be deceiving. Exactly. In February of 2000, US Attorney General Janet Reno approved the decision to put Carrie Steiner on death row if he was convicted in the murder of Joy Armstrong. The trial of the federal government against Carrie Steiner in the murder of Joy Ruth Armstrong was set for October, but in September he accepted a plea bargain that would spare his life as long as he admitted that he killed Joy and vowed to never speak publicly about her murder. It was Joy's mother, Julie, who encouraged the plea deal so that it would spare him a death sentence and spared the lengthy trial. So it was on December 13th, 2000, that Carrie Stainer pleaded guilty to the murder of Joy Armstrong and apologised to her weeping mother and her other family friends and her fiancé. For Carrie Stainer's family, the trial of their oldest son was yet another in a series of tragedies that crushed their spirits and diminished their lives before, just as when Stephen disappeared and then returned home after having been raped at least 3,000 times, according to his captor. So, they were devastated like they were just mm-hmm. like couldn't believe it they said there was nothing out of the ordinary that would make us imagine ever that he could responsible f- be responsible for such a thing however according to his cousin Kathy Amy his sisters had actually discussed whether or not he had had something to do with it after they had heard about the triple homicide at Cedar Lodge where he worked so you wonder did they know more about well him? they obviously
1: did because you're not going to randomly think yeah. oh did my brother or sister came to the of triple murder Yes. Like there had to be like warning signs that they'd seen. Yes. So
0: when Carey was indicted on state charges in the murders of Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso, he pleaded not guilty. His confession was replayed, causing Sylvina's father to scream and leap from his seat before he was escorted from the proceedings. It's so sad. So sad. The state trial against Carrie Stainer in the Sund-Peloso murders was held in San Jose, 200 miles from Yosemite where the crimes occurred. He changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity, sparked in part by his difficult past and his early bouts with OCD. So Carl's husband, Jen's sons, said, I don't think any punishment would be too severe for Carrie Steiner. There had actually been other girls, that were at risk of being a victim of Carrie Stainers. So the night before he saw Carl and the girls in their motel room, he had been in the hot tub with some other guests at the Cedar Lodge. Erin Murphy, who was 12 at the time, was staying at the Cedar Lodge with her sister, her father, two friends and another man, and testified that she was in the hot tub with Steiner the night before the murders. She, however, had no idea how close to death she, her sister and her two friends were. Carrie later said that he had planned to kill them until he realised that their father was there. What? The next night, while Carrie was taking the lives of the three women in room 509, he didn't know that their father and the other man had actually left the lodge um, to return to Watsonville for work. But Carrie did not know this and his origi- that, that his original intended victims were now alone and vulnerable. That knowledge um, sent shivers up and down Bill Murphy's spine. He was the father of the girls. Of course girls.
1: it did. Can you imagine? Mm
0: he actually he's so strange he wrote a letter to Julie Sund Who one of his victims Carrie. Carrie okay he told her how sorrowful he was he said he knows right from wrong I don't think that I am insane but there is craziness that lurks in my thoughts that I have tried to subdue as long as I can remember I'm just sorry that you were there when the years of fantasizing my darkest dreams became a reality in the flesh when a photograph of Julie's body was shown um, in court, her decomposing body slightly covered with leaves and a six inch wound gaping from her neck. Carrie covered his eyes with both his hands to block out the image. Like you were responsible for yeah. it. On August twenty-six, two 2002, Carrie Steiner was convicted of first degree murder. A few weeks later, on September 17th, the same jury spent less than four hours deliberating before deciding that he was sane at the time of the killings. Even though he was already serving life for the murder of Joy Armstrong, their next move would be to determine whether or not he will be sentenced to death for the other murders. His parents asked the jury to take into consideration his childhood and to spare his life. On October 10th, they made their decision. Carrie Steiner would die for the killing of Carol, Julie Sund and Sylvina Paleso. As of 2015, Carrie Steiner is still sitting on death row more than a decade after his sentencing. He blames the obsessive-compulsive disorder and his inability to control his compulsions to murder. A month after he was sentenced to death, Kenneth Parnell, the man who kidnapped his brother Stephen, was arrested in Berkeley after attempting to purchase a young boy. So it's just, it's crazy how this is so linked.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Carol son's family operate the Carol son Carrington Foundation to help locate missing people as well as offer rewards for information for families without the means to do so themselves. So the book I read... um, the True Story of the Yosemite Park Killer by Jack Rosewood is where I got most of the information for this week's episode if anybody is interested. Um, it gives a little bit more detail um, about this case. So it's very, it's interesting, it's, it's crazy how it's so linked to Stephen Stainer. It's very sad how, you know, the Stainer family um, have had to deal with Stephen's disappearance, his death and then also the crimes that Carrie committed. But, you know, it's just also we need to remind ourselves that the victims in this story are Carol, Julie, Sylvina and Joy um, and how their lives were brutally taken away by Carrie Steiner. Okay, thanks for listening to this week's episode, guys, and we will be back next week with a brand new episode of What's the Crime? Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye.